You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We're reading this morning is Mark chapter 6. We'll read verses 1 through 32. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey, except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added... Do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah, and others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he had heard him, Pardon, when he heard him, he was very perplexed, and when he used to enjoy, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And he swore to her. Whatever you ask of me, I'll give it to you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. 
And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Every single resource that I picked up over the past couple of weeks or so, knowing that Mark chapter 6 was coming, mentioned a phrase that is an old adage that really succinctly describes the reality of what's happening in these first six verses. Familiarity breeds what? Contempt. It breeds a despising, and we see that happening. There is a contempt for Christ that is evident here in these first six verses of Mark chapter 6. But it's strikingly odd to us because it's contempt for Jesus, and it's contempt from those who know him best, who rubbed shoulders with him and watched him grow up. So it's a bit mind-boggling to see how much Dishonor and unbelief exists here in the passage. The title of the sermon is Dishonor and Unbelief. And what I hope that we will accomplish this morning is not just seeing that those who were unbelieving displayed their unbelief by dishonoring Christ, but I hope that God will allow us to see the areas that we may not be believing him and thus not honoring him as we ought to. Jesus had grown up like every other child that was either born in Bethlehem or raised in Nazareth. He had grown up like all of the other little boys during that time. His appearance was not notably recognizable with divine distinctions. He wouldn't have been running around in the nursery. And you could see, look at the halo on that one. If you've ever worked the nursery, you know none of them have halos. (laughs) Jesus looked exactly like, from the very beginning to the very end of his earthly life, he looked like the rest of mankind, except the one time on the Mount of Transfiguration. The only way to recognize him for who he was, the only way for us to recognize him for who he is, is faith. Isaiah 53, that Luke read for us, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's what's necessary. That revelation, that revealing of who Christ is, is absolutely necessary for us to see the reality of who he actually is, to see his deity to see him as the Son of God, to see him as God himself. The salvation of the Lord, the the arm or strength of the Lord is revealed, and this results in believing faith. This revealing, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, the prophet asked. 
This revealing is necessary because of the veiling of his glory and his divinity. The incarnation of Christ hid this glory. The incarnation of Christ veiled this deity and divinity from plain sight. This is the way that the apostle says it, writing to the Philippians, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the humiliation that transpired in this second person of the Trinity is only accurately understood, at least in some measure, to some degree, when the height at which Christ initially stood is realized. When we recognize that He is the eternal God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, then when we realize the humiliation that took place, we can begin to understand the massive humiliation that Christ undertook for our sakes. Christ from all eternity was God, was with God, was God himself. By nature, in his very essence, he was and is God. He didn't obtain his deity or his divinity by inheritance. He wasn't just God's son and therefore he inherited divinity or deity from God. But he himself is God and eternal and infinite. He was God before he was born. His humiliation, his incarnation is great because he in his person is supremely great. He came down this steep staircase in love from heaven to earth, from spirit to flesh, from God to man, from creator to created. He himself not being created, but living among the created, like the created, from a sinless state to a sin-marred humanity. And and the staircase for Christ's humiliation continued into one of servanthood among humanity and obedience to his Father and to to his own laws that he himself had established long ago. And then even to death. Not just death by natural causes, but death on a cross. If the Bible didn't reveal this remarkable concept to us, surely we would argue that it's blasphemous to even think such a thing, much less promote it. In fact, Jesus himself was accused of blasphemy when he claimed to be God. Yet he was God and is God, the eternal God, yet born in time. The ancient of days that we sang about, yet he was at once an infant of days. The creator himself, the one who spoke it all into existence and maintains or sustains it by the word of his power, voluntarily lowered himself to the level of those creatures that he had created. 
from the form of God to the form of a servant, from God over all to a servant among all and dependent on others for his all. From equality with God for all of eternity to the subjection of mankind. From Lord over everything to a state of obedience. His deity was veiled, obscured by the addition of flesh like ours. He emptied himself, the apostle says, of his revealed glory, of the evidenced splendor, of that marked majesty that belonged only to him. He emptied himself, pouring himself out into flesh like ours that veiled that glory that was revealed in heaven, that, was, that splendor that was evidenced around the throne, that majesty that marked him for all of time and even before time. In doing so, he didn't cease to be what he was. He still was fully God, fully divine, complete deity. But he became something that he had never been by assuming something he had never possessed in flesh and becoming man. He came to save. Which again, when we remember why he came and why he's there in Nazareth, the providence of God having him grow up in Nazareth, and now we see him back there in Mark chapter 6. He came to save, not just you and me, he came to save those in Nazareth that lived in his community, that were his kin, that lived in his home. He came to save every age of man. He entered our world as an infant, lived as a toddler, was a child, a teenager, and an adult. As a child, we know that he was always about his heavenly father's business and always in subjection to his earthly parents. And there was no contradiction for him. As a youth, he faithfully labored daily with his father as a carpenter. That gets used against him in the text here in Mark 6. As a man, it was his custom to worship in the synagogue. Even though he was God, he shows up and worships alongside his brethren, which is what we see happening in verse 2 of Mark chapter 6. But as he shows up in the synagogue that day, his glory, his deity, that divinity, the godness of who he was, is veiled. Charles Wesley said it this way, if it's not too early for Christmas songs. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Here's the line, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. He was veiled in flesh. The Godhead was veiled in flesh. And so Wesley is encouraging us to worship. Hail this incarnate deity. But only the eye of faith can pierce this fleshly veil seeing Christ's deity. That's why the prophet asks in Isaiah 53, who has believed our message? He goes on and explains why it's difficult to believe that message. He was despised. 
and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. He was not recognizable looking directly at him. But we as humans in our sin are prone to turn away. We definitely will not see him and recognize him. His glory is veiled and we're prone to turn away in our sins. We hide from him because he's despised. We did not esteem him. They didn't esteem him in Isaiah's day. They were not esteeming him here at the synagogue in Nazareth. And we are also born not esteeming him. We are prone to falling into the camp of not honoring him and not believing him. But Jesus knew who he was. In fact, that's why he received accusations of blasphemy. John 10, 33, you being man, they said to him, make yourself out to be God. What a wonderful verse. He is truly God and truly man. They were exactly right, but it was only in accusation form. It wasn't in confident conviction about who he really was. And he didn't just become God, as we mentioned earlier. We have these Old Testament pictures of Christ's pre-incarnate glory that help us come to grips with the fact that it wasn't just God being born, but he's always been glorious And I find it helpful to see this glory, how infinite and everlasting it is, because it helps us then feel the reality of him showing up at Nazareth and being dishonored and not believed. Listen to Ezekiel. Now, above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his Loins and upwards, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on rainy days, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance, Ezekiel writes, of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. Or Isaiah, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. When we see these majestic pictures of Christ before he became man, it helps us understand a little bit more this long staircase of stooping that he underwent to become like us in order to save us. Seraphim stood above him, Isaiah continues, having Each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the Apostle John tells us that the reason that Isaiah said these things is because he saw Christ's glory. And he was talking about Jesus that he saw there, pre-incarnate, before he became a man, but while he was God the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. This, this glory was shared with the Father before Christ left his Father's throne. The Father, Son, and Spirit enjoyed this remarkable, eternal, and infinite glory forever and ever. 
And Jesus gives up the revelation or the exposure of that eternal glory, that constant heavenly worship and that infinite bliss when he leaves his Father's right hand. And when he came, he lived a remarkable life, unmatched. He was sinless. Now we know that to be true, but just try to wrap your mind around Never sinning. He lacked the ability and the inclination to sin. Even as a young boy, let that sink in. Or a teenager, or a young man, or a mature man. At every stage, he remains sinless and obedient and righteous. Always having a perfect love for his father. And a perfect love for others. He kept the greatest commandment and the second that was like it. He had a perfect knowledge of the Scriptures as he continued to learn and to grow. This exemplary knowledge was displayed at the age of 12 when he's having a round table with the teachers of the day. He had a supernatural understanding of what others were thinking. He had the ability to be aware of what was going on in other places. He could know and bring about healing in a place that he, didn't even ex- was, he wasn't even present and could be confident of the outcome. He knew what would happen in the future. When he's planning for the upper room, he, he tells them exactly what they're going to face, who they're going to find, and to go and have the room prepared. Not just the near future, but the distant future, telling us what the end of time would be like. He had effortless power that we've seen previously in the book of Mark, especially in the past several months. Effortless power over nature and demons, over the wind and the waves, and over ridiculously large catches of fish. He's effortless. He fulfilled prophecies that were made about the promised Messiah. There was a perfect display of God's attributes in his life. And not just as he lived day after day, but most especially at the cross, where love is completely put on display. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, gave up his only son to die for all who would believe in him. But not just his love is displayed in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, but his justice is displayed perfectly. The whole reason he had to die was because of our sin. And righteousness or justice and peace kiss each other, the psalmist says, at the cross a perfect display of the characteristics and attributes of God in Jesus Christ. Yet with thinking about the cross on the one hand, we could argue that his glory was most marred there in his bloody death. There's nothing about that that looks glorious to the natural eye. Yet with the eyes of faith, 
we might argue that his glory was never more evident than him giving up himself for his people. Which brings us to Mark chapter 6. Short introduction today. (laughs) This Mark 6 encounter is not the first trip back to his hometown. He's been there before. Mark didn't record it for us. But right after Jesus' baptism and his temptation in the desert, he goes back to his hometown. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, Luke 4 tells us, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He began reading from Isaiah 61. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Early in his ministry, he says, I am the Messiah. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Anointed is, he, he messiahed me. He called me to be the Messiah. I am here. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and all were speaking well of him. And wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. So far, so good. This is what homecomings should be like. But he continued. And he told them that they will eventually and ultimately reject him. He also told them that the Gentiles would be received into the kingdom. And so far, so good went south fast. All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage, Luke writes. And they got up and drove Jesus out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. So much for a fun homecoming. But we find him here in Mark chapter 6, a year, maybe a year and a half later, coming back to Nazareth. Another chance for these hometown folks. Now, it wasn't just the initial situation in in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus has has encounters with those who are close to him. You'll remember back in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus' own people heard about what he was doing, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. Not only did Jesus face this when he went back to Nazareth initially, but he faced it as he is ministering when his family comes after him because they hear of what he's doing, assume he's out of his mind, and they want to take him back and hide him and protect him. It wasn't just his family, but the scribes came down from Jerusalem saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. He cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And here is God in Christ coming back again 
giving another chance for the hometown crowd, another chance for family, friends, and neighbors of Jesus who have expressed nothing but contempt for this man. We get the idea that it's familiarity that has bred some of that contempt. This dishonor and unbelief, they couldn't, couldn't come to grips with that this man was God, that he was who he claimed to be, that he was accomplishing these things because he was God himself. But what mercy we see from Christ here. They tried to throw him off a cliff. And he comes back again. And he shows up again, teaching them, loving them. They tried to remove him from the ministry and put him away in a padded room. And he comes again. I wonder how many times you've been affected with the gospel, how many times your conscience has been pricked. And yet, each time the scriptures are opened, each time you're in fellowship with a friend and the truth of Christ is proclaimed or mentioned, it's another chance for you to turn to him and repent. Verse 1, Jesus went out from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. He went out from there, from, from the busyness of ministry, from Settling the stormy seas, from hushing the wind, from healing, saving, and sending the garrison demoniac, from curing the woman with the bleeding issue, from raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, from there, from these remarkable feats of ministry, from the chapter full of faith, to chapter 6, which up until the very end is a chapter that lacks faith. From there, Jesus came to Nazareth. And he began to teach. Verse 2. The priority of Jesus' life and ministry was to teach the truths of God's word. Jesus taught in the fields. Jesus taught from the boat. Jesus taught in the streets, Jesus taught in homes, Jesus taught in the synagogue on the Sabbath. In fact, if you glance down to the last phrase of this section, and Jesus was going around the villages teaching. He begins this section teaching, it's a pretty unfortunate section of scripture, and he ends it doing the same thing. He was going around the villages teaching. Nothing was going to deter what he had been sent and called to do. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished. Astonished with what they were hearing. Astonished at the words that he was speaking. Astonished at the works that he was accomplishing. Astonished in this way. They were saying, like we might say in amazement, that's unbelievable. Though we would mean it in an amazing sort of kind of way. It, it, it seems almost too good to be true. But here, what they really meant was, I don't believe it. They hear it. They sense the effects of it. They see the works being accomplished. But they were not believing him. 
They didn't believe that he was the source of the authority of the teaching. They didn't believe that he was the source of the power with which the works were being accomplished. They had unbelief in him, which led to unbelief in his words, which led to unbelief in his works. They were astonished at the words he spoke and the works he accomplished. And their astonishment, their lack of belief, leads to an interrogating accusation. I split it up seven different ways. It is shotgun-style interrogation that ensues. And the emphasis, if you'll notice, is on the origin, which I've alluded to already. From where did this man come? From where does the power come? From where does the authority come? Because, as we'll see momentarily, that Jesus, he's just one of us. So it can't be coming from him. They were astonished, saying, middle of verse 2, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Where did he get these things? Because that Jesus certainly lacks the capacity for such things. Anyone from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Anyone who had grown up there certainly could not be doing this of his own accord. He lacks the capacity for this. So where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? There's no way he's this wise. So where's it coming from? Where's the secret source? Does he have a book that he's reading one-liners and spitting them out? What's happening here? There's no way that this Jesus, who is one of us, could be this wise. Or what about his miracles? Where's the source of these miracles? He's not that powerful. There's no way. Because he's too much like us. How does he do these things? In verse 3, it continues, this fourth question. Is this not the carpenter? Is he not like the town technician among us, the jack-of-all-trades that would work with wood and metal and stone? That's what a carpenter was in those days. This is who he is, right? And then number five, is this the son of Mary? Is this not Mary's son? This might be the worst cheap shot of them all. Sons, in that culture, were only and always identified by their fathers, even if the father was deceased. They were identified by their fathers. This is a cheap shot. In essence, saying, is this not that illegitimate mama's boy? Are these not his brothers that we also grew up with, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? We know them. We know them and we know him. Who is this man? Are these not his sisters? We know them. They are like us. But this man is not one of us. But oh, they're trying to make him into their own likeness. We can't do these things. We don't have this wisdom. We have no source of accomplishing miracles by this kind of power. We have 
everyday jobs. We know his brothers and his sisters. Is he not? They are arguing with themselves ultimately. Is he not just one of us? And at the end of the barrage of accusation and interrogation, Mark tells us they took offense at him. Literally, they were scandalized by him, is the emphasis in the original. They were scandalized, and that gets to the point of why they are tempting all these questions. They want to bring him down. They're scandalized by him and his holiness and his purity and what he's come to do. They don't like his message because they like their sin. So they don't believe. And Jesus knows that they don't believe and says in verse 4, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. It is the unbelief of the crowd that robs Christ of his honor, strips it away from him. And he is dishonored in his hometown, which would be one thing. But look at the the levels, or think of it as concentric circles getting closer here. He's dishonored in his hometown. He's dishonored, a little bit tighter circle, among his own relatives. All the way to the tightest, he's dishonored in his own household. which is really mind-boggling for those with eyes of faith. Because this man, this Christ, has been honored by tax collectors who turned from their sin, by prostitutes who gave up their old way of life, by the Samaritan woman in her entire village, by poor and needy sinners who repent, by Roman centurions who will eventually believe. He's honored by these, and yet no honor for this glorious God-man in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and even in his own household. He could do no miracle there, Mark writes, except he did lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them. But by and large, his ministry of miracles was not on display at Nazareth. He could do no miracle there. He had no power in his hometown. Like, what's, what's going on? That looks, I've been saying this man is infinite in power. And Mark tells us he can't even do a miracle now. Lack of faith does not prevent Jesus' ability. That's not what's happening here. Jesus could not do a miracle because he would not do a miracle. They would not receive the blessing, so he did not give it. Faith is receiving Jesus could have asserted his power, and there were times and, and that are recorded in the Scriptures where he did assert his power and suppress the rebellion of the people, even bringing about healing from a health standpoint, from a physical standpoint at times when sins weren't forgiven, they weren't healed spiritually. Yet here in this situation, Jesus predominantly, for the most part, he allows their attitudes and their actions to result in their impending judgment and condemnation. In fact, Jesus not accomplishing many miracles among these unbelieving people is actually a mercy by not increasing their condemnation on Judgment Day. 
Everyone who has been given much, much will be required. We can say with great confidence that it will be better for the Gerasene pagans who begged Jesus to leave them than it will be for this hometown crowd. Because the people of Nazareth have more light and greater privileges, yet they did not believe, therefore dishonoring Christ. And Jesus, verse 6, wondered at their unbelief. Surely he would wonder at it. He knew what he had given up to come and save them. He knew what he would undergo in order to redeem them. And so there's a shocking pity in the heart of our Lord, a weighty heartbreak because of his true longing for them. He wondered. He's in awe at their unbelief. I came for you, we can hear him saying. And yet you don't want the forgiveness that I came to provide. And then his response. He was going around the villages teaching. He didn't wallow in discouragement. The very thing that earned him the dishonor, he knew that was the only hope. And so he just kept on teaching the truth. The only hope that these people had, these people who did not believe, was to hear because faith comes by hearing. So what will we do when we are dishonored for proclaiming Christ, for making choices that honor him? How will we respond to those who do not believe? By God's grace, let's just teach the truth. Let's continue to make ourselves wonderfully acquainted with the the truth of God's word, with the principles that are here, and live in light of them. And promote them with our mouths and with our lives. Now, we should note, at least in some measure before closing, that the dishonor that Christ is experiencing here, at least for some that he's experiencing dishonor from, is only temporary. In one sense, All who dishonor Christ will be done away with, and he will not be dishonored. He is not being dishonored in his person now, though his glory and reputation is all over the earth. But his dishonor ultimately is only temporary. He understands this. John 17, 5, Father, he prays, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus had glory with the Father. He himself was glorious as God. He gave up that evidenced glory, that marked splendor and majesty while he was here on earth. And before he's going to the cross, praying here in the high priestly prayer, he's saying, glorify me together with yourself again. The way the glory was before I stooped down in humiliation to save these people, God restored that glory So the dishonor is only temporary. 
In fact, just previously and then later in the same high priestly prayer, you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. All authority has now been given to Christ. And he gives eternal life so that those who dishonor him have the capacity to now honor him. I desire that they also, Jesus praying, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, that they may see my glory. God, pull the veil back even more from their eyes that they may see my glory, his dishonor, the veiling of his glory is only temporary. It's promised in Psalm 2. I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. Or in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, right before his ascension, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The dishonor of Christ is only temporary. If you are dishonoring Christ or have dishonored Christ, that can be temporary too. You don't have to dishonor him anymore. You can run to him in repentance and find forgiveness for your sins. There is coming a day when we will all be, all who are in Christ will be surrounded. will surround the throne, rather, witnessing, singing, taking part in. Revelation 19, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. The Apostle John writes, I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no dishonoring of Christ as he sits on the throne in the heavens. Even some of those that Mark is referring to here in this passage, the brothers of Jesus, for example, their unbelief and dishonor was only temporary. They were with Mary, his mother, along with others in the upper room, waiting for the promised coming of the Holy Spirit. James, his brother, goes on to be a pillar in the early church, records one of the New Testament letters along with Jude, another brother, But what about you? What about us? If you don't believe, and if your life is full of dishonoring Christ, the reason that the hometown folks didn't believe in Jesus is the same reason you don't. So what about you? Are you disbelieving his claims particularly the claims to be God, to be your Savior, to be Lord? Are you disobeying his commands to be worshipped and followed with your all in all? Are you delighting in his competitors? That is, are you worshipping idols? Are you denying his coming? God, it's been so long 
Think of the millennia since the beginning of time, even 2,000 years since he, was, since he said he was coming back. The Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all, for each and every one to come to repentance. If you've yet to cast yourself onto Christ, repenting of your sins and believing Him, I cannot urge you strong enough to run to Jesus, turning from your sin, believing His claims, obeying His promises, delighting in Him alone, and anticipating His glorious coming. When He consummates His kingdom, when we see Him as He is, when we're made into His likeness, when he is dishonored no more. He is and always has been a God of second chances and third and fourth and fifth. And if you are not in Christ this morning, here is a chance. You're not promised another one. Don't presume on him. Run to Jesus and find forgiveness. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the warnings of your word, for the encouragements, the promises that they are true, that they are yes and amen in Jesus, who is our Lord. God, we pray that you'll take the truths contained in scriptures, particularly the ones that we've considered this morning, whether in reading, in prayer, in song, in in the preaching. Will you take them and embed them deep within our souls that it might bring forth faith and repentance, that you might save and continue to save and sanctify your people. God, we pray that you would get glory for yourself, that you would grant faith and repentance in order that many might believe that we might be a people who seek to honor you with all of who we are. You and your Son and the Holy Spirit deserve honor and glory both now and forever. We pray that you would use our lives to accomplish that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.